Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Paul Myrie, Senior Associate Director, is in the Sound Engineers booth. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation today, Dr. William Yu. Dr. Yu is Associate Professor of American Religious and Cultural History, as well as Director of the Master of Divinity Program with Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Welcome, William, to the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Lynn. I'm excited to be here. So I'm going to ask you a question that for most people is fearful. Um, but for you, I, this is one of, I think, this is a question that you like. How's your teaching? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. How is my teaching? I think one is, it's wonderful. It is a, a privilege. It is a pleasure. It is a joy to be in theological education in these challenging times, to uh, collaborate and learn together with students about how we might be more faithful, more honest, and more effective in our worship and witness in Christianity in the United States. So it's exciting. Talk more about what it means to teach in the United States, to teach history of Christianity in the West and teach history of Christianity, in the, particularly in the United States, the United States South in particular, as well as in this moment, right? We're in a peculiar moment to be, to be teaching anything, right? But particularly history of Christianity. Oh, Lynn, I, you're, you're right. I think, so I've known for a long time in my own education through, uh, through seminary and graduate school and into my first several years of teaching um, that history breeds or is meant to foster humility and learning how to see from the perspective of the other and into the past. It is meant to foster illumination clearer insight and understanding of how we got to where we are today. But I think for myself in my own classroom and whether it be as the student or now as the, the teacher, it has not been as confrontational as it needs to be in terms of really wrestling with and grappling with the complexities and the injustices that have been cultivated, propagated, uh, and, uh, manifested by Christians in this country. So for example, Lynn, I think when I look back at even how I taught, let alone learned about the history of slavery in the United States, it wasn't a total falsehood, but there were a lot of misdirections. One misdirection, for example, was the greatest takeaway in terms of studying primary sources is we looked at typically an art, uh, an article, an essay, or an excerpt from an abolitionist, and how they use the scriptures to promote Black liberation and emancipation. And there was a pro-slavery text of a literal interpretation of the Bible that was meant to defend and to continue sustain slavery. And so the big takeaway of the lesson is the mistakes of biblical misinterpretation. Oh, that's why in our pulpits today we don't prove text from the scriptures about this issue and that issue. And while I think that's a good takeaway lesson and it's important, it totally overlooks the active participation and complicity 
of white Christians, white American Protestants, for example, in being enslavers and in promoting and defending slavery. And what was slavery? It was not simply a misinterpretation of literal reads of a few passages in the Bible, but it was the, the physical oppression, sexual violence, economic exploitation, and total moral destruction of this country in what we call the antebellum era. But instead of focusing too much on that, we're just really, I don't mean this in a bad way, but we're just kind of looking at our Bibles. I know, let's read our Bibles better. And we leave the classroom. Yay, we know how to read the Bible now. And here's one lesson from the past. And I just think that's not a very helpful, honest way to engage this particular history among other histories. And so, and uh, you were talking about collaboration with students, um, which I absolutely agree that I, I think as faculty people, as teachers, we are walking alongside of our adult students. We are walking alongside of people of faith. We are walking alongside of church leaders and society leaders. I also agree because it was my experience in my own classrooms, the lack of confrontational um, angst by students because they, like you said, they just either don't want to um, hear that things should be contested, nor do they want to contest what I'm trying to teach them. Right? They don't. They don't. They don't come for the most part. Not everybody, for the most part, with that fire in their bellies about how do we engage and grapple with some of these hard lessons, like say, slavery, like how to read the biblical text about slavery. So. How do we get a handle on that, though, William? You know, how do you how do you say to people, fight back, right? <laughs> or it's just why why are we here if we're just going to be smooth and um, and lackluster? Oh, that's that's a big challenge. I think I think you have better answers than me, Lynn. So I'm going to mm. try to say something brief and then ask you the same. I think it requires a willingness to engage in truth-telling. And for example, in history, really studying the truth. So for example, with slavery, it is to study the truth that I think many, if not most, white American Protestants were not supportive of immediate abolition. And I think the historical record demonstrates that. Perhaps some were in favor of what was known as gradual emancipation, which was this idea of trying to ameliorate. That's a word that enslavers, a notion they like, that we can make what was a barbaric, torturous system, that we can make it more humane, and in particular, using religious doctrines and impulses to make it so. Another idea was, rather than immediate abolition, it is um, colonization which is a, a term that I think in the primary sources going back, if you look at the 1820 to 1860, it's actually all over the place, but it's kind of disappeared now. So that when we say African colonization or the movement to, to send free black Americans to Liberia, it's what, what? That's, that's not part of our history for real. That's really something that happened. And it overlooks the popularity of that movement. And of course, what I mean by popularity, not the rightness of it, but the, the ways in which it resonated in white U.S. Protestant communities, um, and or otherwise simply saying, I am not for slavery, but I am also 
So I fear the consequences of abolition. Um, and so it is to, again, that's just one example, but to engage with the truth telling of that's really what happened. And then reflecting on where those legacies reverberate today and what that means for us. And I think you're right that there's several reasons why we are hesitant to do that. One is simply, I think, two is it really stretches our imagination of what it meant or what it means to be a Christian in the United States. How could Christians, how could they all not be for immediate abolition? It seems so like simple to us. And then the second thing is, it also touches on what it means to be an American. And then when you put those two forces together of whether it be American exceptionalism and Christian witness or what it means to be Christian, I do think, I think it's possible and I think we do need to delve deeply into those waters. But I think that's why a lot of us simply just kind of stand at the seashore or we look for a different beach. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what do you think are other reasons why we don't want to be confrontational in theological education? I think we don't want the trouble, right? I, I think um, students in coming to seminary don't want trouble, right? Just give me what I need to go out and do a good job in leadership rather than the way you learn is, is to understand the arguments, whether you're argumentative, or, but to understand the arguments, to understand that there are multiple positions to one of anything, right? Um, and that feels troublesome. So I think students oftentimes come not quite understanding what it is to enter into seminary and find, um, a bit of disappointment and a bit of angst when they say, what do you mean we're supposed to tell the truth and that there are multiple truths? I just thought there was one of everything in the world. So I think it's many students experience a kind of bait and switch. I think the other thing is that we've lost um, the permission giving or the training for being troublesome people about our own faith, that we are supposed to be prophetic and being prophetic is risky, right? So to go out and speak against the grain, to go out and say, um, Christians have not, still don't, didn't and still don't have a, a commitment to across the board, 100% of Christianity, that oppression and racism and sexism and all the, all the inferiority politics have been solved. It is one of the most contentious spots of Christianity to say who's inferior and who's superior and that whole identity politics thing. Many of our students don't see that as a conversation in theology. And then someone like you, Dr. Yu comes and says, well, we're, we're gonna teach church history squarely on the politics of troublemaking. That's a surprise to most people. Where have they, there been developments and where, they, where have there been pitfalls? over the past generation or so in kind of this kind of um, what we might say holistic or full kind of theological education, because there have been a lot of strides. For example, yes. I think across Association of Theological Schools, though we vary greatly on theological biblical interpretation, there is in some ways, right, Lynn, a, a shared commitment, for example, to inclusion and representation. Though I get that it means a lot of different things in a lot of different camps. But for example, I think, I don't know, I hope not many 
would say, I have a survey American uh, Christian history course where I assign about 60 assigned readings. And I think my last count, 31 are written and authored by scholars of color and 29 from white scholars. And that's just one example of trying to be diverse and inclusive. But at another level, Lynn, I actually don't think it's a big deal. And I actually kind of cringe a little bit when um, others say, wow, that's a really, like, that's a model syllabus. I've never seen anything like it. And so I, I get it. And I don't mean to be facetious about it. But again, I just think that's, I don't know if that's a, I just think that's how we should teach. Um, and I think there's some commitments to that. So I think that's one area of positivity or one area of it's a growing edge. Like, what do you think in terms of, I know we're trying to talk about theological education writ large when it's really like educations versus education. Yeah, it's absolutely educations. I, I mean, I, I think you bring up a fascinating point of, about um, when we say inclusion, what do we mean, right? So we say we're trying to have inclusive syllabi. We're trying to include people in our, to our communities. We're trying to bring diversity into our communities. Um, I think many schools have not taken an audit to see what diversities already exist in their spaces. They assume diversity is needed because they don't have enough of some constituency, African-American constituency or recent immigrant population constituency or women or whatever kind of the identity politic flavor of the, I don't mean to be too flipped there. You know what I mean? So, so one of the biggest um, and most difficult places for me to teach invite divide diversity was always in theological diversity. It's when the moderates, the conservatives, and the liberals, regardless of their race, were in the same classroom trying to have a conversation. That to me was much more difficult than racial diversity. But yet we, we don't often acknowledge the theological diversities that could and probably do exist in many classrooms. Um, so much of the conversation assumes based on your race or based on your social location, whether you're liberal, conservative, or moderate, right? So most of the African-Americans I know are what I would describe as painfully conservative, except for one issue, and that's on racism, right? Then we're quite liberal, right, With about the eradication of race. So we just, we, we have not taken the time to be more sophisticated about the notion of inclusion, to be more sophisticated about who are the people's in our classrooms, who are the peoples who are on our faculties. Um, and it sounds like your syllabus is doing that, you know, either intuitively or just out of your own understanding of there's more than one of anything in the world, right? So that that's usually the first step for many people. They struggle with that first step and you've done that first step and gone on down the road. Maybe, I, I hope so, but I do, your observation about theological diversity in a seminary classroom, it really hits home to me. I do think in terms of my teaching now, that is both a, like a place of maybe promise and peril or a, a place of like growth and pain. Uh, so, so for example, two separate, but hopefully they intersect. One is um, it is there are non-Black students who know very little about um, the, the breadth and the depth of, of Black theology and African-American perspectives uh, beyond a few isolated individuals 
in the 1950s and 60s, for example. They know a little bit about John Lewis, but not really. They know the, the elderly statesman, John Lewis, not the radical who almost wasn't allowed to speak at the March on Washington because he was so prophetic about his message for racial justice. and so, Too radical for King and, and his followers. <laughs> that's right. Disparaging mm -hmm. of you know, wanting mm -hmm. to confront white supremacy in the South. But, um, mm -hmm. but again, but it's uh, so it's exciting for non-Black students to, to learn about this. Some of it is quite surprising. And it's a process of processing aloud sometimes in class. But on the other hand, I have African-American students who um, want to wanna move beyond the foundation and the introduction um, that really want to delve deeply and look at other kinds of Black theology to study not only James Cone, but Pamela Leitze, for example, on Black queer theology. Um, or, and it's the idea of the awakening of non-Black students. I don't want it to come at the expense and the pain of Black students. And in the same way, Lynn, we're also experiencing a phenomenal growth in students who are gender non-conforming, queer and trans. And it's exciting. Some of it has to do with the denomination to which my seminary belongs, the Presbyterian Church USA and changes in polity about eight years ago. Um, but again, we have other students who uh, queer theology and the idea of queer theology beyond apologetics to use Lynn Marie Tonstans. It's this, oh, we're not really talking about queer theology as the same value as cis hetero theology, but how it contributes and how it enhances what we understand about God. And that's, again, all of that is processing aloud. And some of it for all these students in these cases, it really is a beautiful thing to come in year one, leave year three, this generative growth and liberative understand, expansive understandings. But I'm always concerned at whose cost. Is it at the cost of Black students? Is it at the cost of queer students? Uh, yeah, do you get, I get that it's complex, but what do you think about what I'm seeing in my classroom and how I'm trying to adjudicate or negotiate that? Oh, I think you're squarely on a hotspot that people try to stay away from. And by what, what I mean by that is one of the... Um, jargons and it's and the jar the jargon terms and it's and people don't mean it to be shallow but one of the jargon terms is we need learner-centered classrooms right we hear that all the time learner-centered classrooms and and what you just described in its complexity would be a learner-centered classroom many people don't want to take the time don't have the training don't have the background to, to lean into what you just described in terms of identity politics. So when they say learner-centered classrooms, what, they're, what they are meaning is we let students talk when a faculty-centered classroom would not. Well, that's not what a learner-centered class is, right? Or that, and that's not what we're talking about in terms of inclusion, right? These issues of inclusion, diversity, equity, and justice, belonging in classrooms. Um, so I think the issues that you raise are substantial issues. They're also issues that people tend to steer away from. One, because it's hard work. And it's not that they're lazy. They, people just don't have time, right? Literally don't have time. Institutions don't make room for these kinds of conversations. Um, and the other thing is they don't have the background. What do you do? One of, one, of the, one of the complications is, what do you do when you're trained in your scholarly field, but you have not been trained 
yourself for inclusion, equity, diversity, and justice, right? When you genuinely don't know what you don't know. And now in 2022, you are now taxed with going beyond your own training. On one hand, I want to say that's the, that's the job of scholarship. You got to keep up. You got to keep fresh. You got to keep adapting and expanding. On the other hand, there are a whole bunch of our colleagues who would say, I am so privileged now that I am got a job, now that I'm tenured, now that I'm promoted, now that my contract has been renewed, I'm not trying to expand and grow. Oh, you, you think so? <laughs> then what is it we're trying to do if we're not trying to, or is it to expand and grow in what I am comfortable with that's, or that's in the area of scholarship? My next book can be similar to my last book, the stuff that I didn't get in the manuscript. That is so the stuff that got edited out makes yeah, a great second book. I, I understand. But then um, but I do, I do understand and recognize we want to be the best educators we can be, particularly for those of us in seminaries, divinity schools, there is um kind of a measure of faith that is both good but that also can be um, somewhat deceptive perhaps because uh, it leads to the veneer of inclusion rather than the authentic real thing. But, um, but yeah, so, but we're finite beings. And so I do recognize the many challenges of like, I don't want to jump after the next shiny thing because it's the next shiny thing. But what I do want to get at, and I hope that I can invest in, like what you're saying, genuine inclusion and real, a willingness to get into, into the troublemaking for the sake of authentic growth and flourishing. I think those are things worth pursuing. It's that what we know about diversity and inclusion and equity and justice is that it changes people. And the, the, the misthought or the mistake or the misunderstanding is, yes, we will let other people in, others in, and we will not change. We will resist change. We will, right? Change will not come upon us. When, if you, if you make that tiny step, the door has been opened. Change is upon you, right? You, get, it's, it's, you can't, you can't, you can still resist it, I guess, but change is there. Um, and we also know that with change comes conflict. So, so many good-hearted folks will say, yes, we welcome people who are different than us, but we do not welcome the conflicts then that ensue. Those don't, those come hand in hand. Now, they don't have to be bloody wars or battles. You know what I mean? They don't. But institutions are not wired for the change, for the conflict, for the inclusion in the depth, Dr. Yu, that you are talking about. I think we, I think we don't have a choice though. I think it is time to move in those directions. And many schools have, right? Many colleagues have, many schools have, many courses have, many others need to, and we need conversation partners and colleagues and collaborations, coalition building even to help us move in these directions of change. Is it, is it easier or more complicated in a freestanding seminary to do this kind of work, right? So you're at Columbia. Um, a freestanding seminary, which doesn't have all the tethers to larger uh, university decision-making and bureaucracies. And I say bureaucracies both in its best and its worst forms, right? So does it matter in teaching if you're at a freestanding seminary? 
Oh, that's a really good question. I've, I've thought about that some. I do think, I think the gift of being at a freestanding seminary, and I will add the important caveat that uh, a freestanding seminary with a wealthy and healthy endowment that allows us to be endowment funded in um, offering and awarding many, many tuition-free scholarships to our, um, what we call first level master's degree students. Um, so I think it's a gift. And I think what we are seeing more of in recent years and thinking about inclusion and diversity, I also think about access. It is, we are welcoming a wide diversity of students and we do cover some about ethnicity and race and human sexuality and gender identity. And in addition, what I mean by access is students who, for whom graduate education in their own minds and lives would have never been possible. It's not something that I could afford, or it's not something where I could have access to the, and I don't mean to puff up and celebrate like us or other freestanding seminaries, but access to, to so much, to, to, to well-educated um, like scholars who are teaching, like to learn New Testament at Columbia Seminary from Drs. Mitzi Smith and Raj Nadella. Whoa, to learn pastoral care from Dr. Shanika Walker-Barnes and Mindy Magura Sharp. This is like an amazing thing and that I can do it at very little cost and I can do it without demonstrating on my application for admission that I have any knowledge of the academic study of religion and theology. And yet you've welcomed me and you've said, come on in. And you've said you're going to accommodate and you're going to help me if I'm a second career student who hasn't been in higher ed for 30 years, or from a student who's not quite clear about all the academic standards of writing, you said I'm in and you say you're going to help me get through there. And so that's something else I think we're, we're working with. And I, I think it's, it's both like a joy, but it's also a challenge. Like, how do we, I don't know, how do we become compassionate without compromising our academic mission? Do you get kind of, I know I'm saying a lot here, but do you understand this challenge that I'm I trying did. to address? Well, the, but the, for me, the good news is the radicality of the gesture, right? So for those who would have been left behind, who wanted to come into classrooms, um, to who wanted to study with these brilliant scholars, like you said, did not have access, are now given access. There's a, there's a radicality there um, that, is, that is transforming for communities beyond the seminary, into churches, into communities in ways that it was not the case when you had to go through all the bells and whistles and all those kind of things. Um, I do think it certainly challenges and already begins to redefine what um, intellectual rigor is, what, what excellence, right? This, this elusive notion of excellence is that um, speaking the, the language of the non-intellectual does not mean that people are not smart does not mean the people are not able to think in complex ways, right? I'm, I've always been amazed at people who um, in, in, in deep rural areas and urban areas who have stayed alive, right? Some of the smartest people I know don't have degrees. So we're not talking about intellect per se, but we are talking about um, how do we grapple with these ideas and how do we bring these ideas out of classrooms and put them in the public sphere to test them out, right? Why do we need these ideas kind of, you know, cloistered away from 
how we are becoming a nation. Democracy is, is being contested. We were talking about, you know, things that are not being contested at the beginning of the conversation that we're trying to get more contestation in the, in the culture of our classrooms. At the same time, the country is, has a milieu of contesting most things that used to be standard, like the notion of democracy, right? Which is still the great experiment. So I applaud Columbia. I applaud you, I applaud Columbia for trying this radical thing. But you, and Len, you were saying earlier, it is, um, it's not enough to welcome the change without changing, right? As a teacher, as an institution. Um, and so like how much of, and I get it's, it's a complex thing and there's no mathematical formula. It's 55% this, 45% that. But how much of it is responding to the student population that is, but also proactively thinking about the student population that, I don't know, that you dream of or that, that you want? Or can even theological institutions do that? I do think, again, not all freestanding schools, but freestanding schools with wealthy endowments maybe perhaps can do a little bit. Uh, I, again, I feel bad even saying it that way, but I no, just want to be honest but, about the economics. The, the, and the economics matters, right? So we do need places of experimentation. We do need laboratories, right? And, that, and that's not only fair. Everybody can't be a laboratory, but for those who can be, we need that, right? We need people trying new things, people trying to figure out ways to do this better, differently. Um, we do know that theological education is behind, <laughs> behind in its own evolution, right? In its own keeping up with the church, it, with its own keeping up with faith and the faith formation that society will have and will tolerate. Um, so again, you don't, we don't have to have, we don't have to have every school doing the same thing. That's not the point. That's never the point. Give us two or three schools who can experiment and be platforms for investigation, new kinds of investigation. And we've made a contribution to theological education. Do you think embedded divinity schools are well positioned to do this kind of experimentation too? I think they could be. I think the leadership could craft ways for them to be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them out of this, this, uh, this call or this dream, right? I think they could be doing a different kind of thing than Columbia is suited for, but that's the point. Everyone would have to figure out where their experiment, experimentation lies. Because I, what I think all schools should be doing is having some aspect of experimentation for their own grow, growing edge. Every school will not, is not getting the students that they wanted because many schools, not all, are still thinking about the, stu the students they had in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Those people are gone. <laughs> those, those populations are not the available pools for students in seminaries. Um, so if we look at the available pools in seminaries, they are not, they are new populations for the faculties that have convened themselves. And aligning the faculties with the available pools of students have to come together in some sort of understanding of each other rather than just inflicting curriculum on students, no matter who those students are, and no matter the state of the world um, that they where they will serve churches or not serve churches. One of the biggest um, 
biggest challenges for seminaries right now is so many people are coming in and they say they don't want to pastor. They just want to be theologically trained. That's still stymieing a whole bunch of schools. It's like, oh, well, what, what, mine. <laughs> what do we do with these people? Well, you better think quick. All right? You better get to it. Um, and get to it in genuine ways, not these glossed over ways, because a lot of schools responded, but the responses have been very flimsy. And then what do you, what I wrestle with, Lynn, is what does an individual faculty person like me do? What I mean is certainly there's a lot. It is the seminary where I teach. So I am a member, I am a constituent of Columbia Seminary, but on the other hand, I am just a faculty member. And what I mean by that is that there are limits to uh, administrative um, influence, import, impact. I think you know what I mean by this question. And so I want to, I want to be a good stakeholder. I want to be a good institutional citizen, but I don't want to row so hard in streams where I'm not supposed to be rowing or where some other folks don't want me to be rowing anyway. Because then that doesn't seem, it's always, I don't know, sometimes I get the grass is greener on the other side. I don't want to get into that when I, we, when I talk with some of my embedded divinity school colleagues where they're like, my job is really clear. I need to write and teach. Sometimes it's just write, and that's what it is. And I get being at a freestanding school, it's a little bit different than that. Um, but yeah, I want to do it well. And sometimes I feel confounded by, it seems like there are unlimited pathways, but then some of them close really quick. <laughs> and yeah, but there I is zero sum game, right? Yeah, you go, you're you're tired the door tonight. Gets slammed on me and I'm like, oh, right, that wasn't, right, yeah. Right. Uh, what do you, my, what no, do you, my nose gets squished. I, I what mean, do you do? I think, I think it's about as much as possible, um, the long haul. I don't think there's one quick solution, one right solution. I think it's about um, the arc of institutional change. Um, I also think it's about having conversation partners so you don't feel like you're alone, so you can bounce ideas off of more than yourself, right? We are all trained to be by ourselves, bouncing ideas off of ourselves, and then declaring, look at my new idea, right? So that's not quite as severe as it is, but well, for many of us. Um, so so it, I think it helps to have people in conversation with you, two or three, three or four like-minded people in the same institution or a different institution makes all the difference in the world. Um, and I also think it helps to know that you're not looking for a right answer, you're looking for new ways to engage the newness of the world. So you're not looking for, again, this, this idea of one, this one project, this one thing, um, and, and open to what is, what is coming toward you, right? There's so much, because the traditions have changed so quickly, we can in earnest say so much of what we thought we knew is gone. There's no moorings anymore. There's no, right? The traditions are gone. So what the next thing, things will be, it's about waiting now and waiting, not in idleness, waiting and doing. Um, institutional politics aside, I think much of teaching is, should be more grounded in imagination and creativity than ever before. Um, any of those answers are not satisfying, though, to most of our colleagues who said, I'm just, my load is a 2-2. My load is a 3-3. Three, three. 
is a three three. I serve on too many committee meetings and I never get invited to the board of trustees and I meet with the dean at the faculty, right? The, so, somehow the day-to-day -day reality um, does not lend itself to these notions of imagination and creativity and all those kinds of things and risk-taking and all those kinds of things when people are just trying to keep their jobs. Even so, there's, there's got to be a way to have conversation partners um, and allies beyond seminary training that are invested in theological education um, to say, well, what, what newness can we do or what old things can we double down on because they are still refreshing themselves and be willing for that, those answers to be unorthodox or not to our expertises and willing to expand ourselves. For me, those are all difficult answers, but that's kind of where we are. From my vantage, that's where we are. We are. I think that's, um, that is exciting. I think in some ways. Um, well, yeah, uh, so Columbia has done a lot of work. That's what's so impressive about Columbia is the amount of work you all, you know, the new Marcia Riggs building and the new scholarships know, and all those kind of things. It is not, it, it is somewhat different than some of the other seminaries and universities that are doing it in that, um, for example, Princeton Seminary, another Presbyterian seminary, it was several years of what they call historical audit. Um, Carrie Day writes about it beautifully in her uh, Notes of a Native Daughter. And at the end of it, it was this conclusion and idea of reparations and how to do financial, changing building names and the like. I think for us, it was really an administration and a board uh, in the summer of 2020, amid all the racial unrest that said, here's where we're going. We're, we're going to change the name of a building to honor Dr. Riggs, our first tenured Black professor. We're going to offer our most generous scholarships, not to non-Black Presbyterian students, but to ecumenical Black American students. And we're going to welcome, and we're going to try to do this thing that we believe God is calling us to do. And now we are doing the so for most, it's we studied all this and here's the conclusion. For us, it's here's the conclusion and now we're trying to figure out why. And we're, now we're trying to follow the momentum of our leadership. Instead of pushing our leadership, they're kind of pushing us. So it's exciting. just a different model, but that's it's where exciting. we're going. So we just launched um, a new way to access funds to the Wabash Center. Um, and it's by application rather than proposal writing. But you have to be willing to make application to be to gather a group of conversation partners in your school to talk about issues of equity, diversity, and belonging, however you want to in your school. I would really love if you would convene that group and participate in that project. It's post, we just posted it on the website. Okay. Um, it's under the grants. It's under grants. Um, but it's five thousand dollars to convene. Uh, folks to have conversations w within an institution, not across so institutions. So either ends. one. It could be either one. It could be exclusively within, so three or four people from Columbia, or one person from Columbia, one person from ITC, and one person from Harvard. We don't. It doesn't matter. It's um, and it's and it uses a case study methodology. But the point is that people are talking about diversity in context rather than like extrapolating them and bringing them to Crawfordsville or bringing them out of the context. There's an, there's an ongoing conversation in context 
um, where people are convening each other and holding each other accountable for these thoughts and ideas. That's what I was thinking about when I was answering one of your questions to say, you know, how do we do this? I think it's about these contextual collaborations, partnerships, conversations that are missing because people want to talk in the ethers about stuff rather than, you know, this is what happened to me in my class and this is what I was stymied by and help me now, you know, in a case study method, pick apart and analyze and say, well, what could we do? What do we do with this? And sometimes there's nothing to do. Other times there's a structural change that can be made or something in between. So, so Lynn, do, do you think students at embedded divinity schools are more um, or differently prepared for what we were talking about, the deconstruction, the confrontation? I always thought maybe a little bit more, but maybe mm-hmm. I could be wrong. I mean, I, I went to a freestanding seminary for my MDiv and then THM and PhD at an embedded div school. So I don't know. So here's, here's the problem. I was actually just talking about this with a friend this morning um, because embedded theological schools are under the gun to keep their admissions numbers up. So even though they have all these admission standards, one of the things we've that faculties are complaining about is they have all these rigorous, academically rigorous standards, but yet the students that are that make it through the process because admissions people have to hit a certain number Then they started talking about these people have a pulse and they're able to sit up in a chair. They have very little (laughs) knowledge when they already get here. So just because they're embedded and have these standards, who's who's watching those standards when the admissions people are under such, under the gun because of budgetary constraints to hit those numbers, regardless of where they get those people from? Thank you, William, for this conversation, this provocative conversation, right? This uh, very stimulating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so. I hope it was all those things. To our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place to find information about our workshops and cohort opportunities, resources on teaching like our podcasts, our blogs, and our journal on teaching. A special thanks to podcast producer Rachel Mills. The music which frames our podcast are the original compositions of Dr. Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 26 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? Mm-hmm.